So Merkel had a completely different uh, uh, attitude. And yet she not only pursued the same uh, policy as Gerhard Schröder regarding the energy uh, dependency, but she made it worse, much worse. The secret of politics? Make a good treaty with Russia. Former German Chancellor Bismarck's advice seems to have resonated with an entire generation of German leaders in the 21st century, from the Social Democrat Gerhard Schroeder to the conservative Angela Merkel. For years, Germany built its economic ties with Russia, but also its dependence on Vladimir Putin's increasingly authoritarian and militaristic regime. This German illusion crashed somewhere in the fields of Ukraine in February 2022. But Germany is not the only European heavyweight to have indulged itself with these Russian illusions. Across the Rhine, several French presidents of all political stripes also attempted to build ties with Russia in the name of France's strategic interests, with mixed results at best. Today we try to understand these Franco-German illusions and their consequences for Europe. We are joined by Guy Chazen, the FT's Berlin bureau chief, and Sylvie Kaufmann, columnist for Le Monde and author of Les Avoglais, a brilliant book on today's topic. As always, please rate and review Uncommon Decency on whatever platform you use to get podcasts, and send us your comments or questions either on Twitter at UndecencyPod or by email at UndecencyPod at gmail.com. Please consider supporting the show through Patreon. The link for that is patreon.com slash UndecencyPod. There you'll be able to get access to the full episode where we talk in further detail about France and the vindication of Polish fears. We hope you enjoy this episode. So let's get straight into it. In the early 2000s, you have a fresh-faced Vladimir Putin who managed to sell this image of a modernizing Russia with a modernizing leader to the rest of the world. Fast forward more than 20 years later, and what we have left is an authoritarian regime which is waging war in Ukraine. But in the meantime, for those 24 years or so, in France and in Germany, many fell for this Russian illusion. Sylvie, this is a theme of your latest book. Can you walk us through how he managed to sell that illusion to France and Germany and why maybe on the other side so many f- people fell for that illusion? Uh, well, that's a long story because it, uh, it's been lasting for 24 years, as you said. Uh, but you mentioned the early 2001. I think one defining moment was uh, September 25, 2001, when Vladimir Putin, who uh, was president for uh, since uh, early 2000, was invited to give a speech to the Bundestag in, in Berlin. And that was the first time um, a Russian... Uh, leader was uh, was invited to to speak to the Bund- to the Bundestag, and he uh, really um, put a show, <laughs> which was extremely successful. Um, I think uh, he wanted to seduce uh, um, Berlin, and he uh, succeeded. He really came across as the. Um, the the fresh president of Russia who wanted to cooperate with the West, who was very open, who wanted to have friendly relations with Europe. He talked uh, as he was, as if he were opening his heart. You know, he, of course, he knew Germany 
or at least East Germany well, because he had been stationed as a KGB officer for five years in, in Dresden. And, he, and suddenly, after a few minutes of his speech, he switched to German, and he uh, spoke a very good uh, German. And, um, and that was really a wonderful show where, uh, I, you know, he got a standing ovation, of course, at the end of, of his speech. And, and that was really what the German political class at that, at that time wanted to hear. And also bear in mind that it was two weeks after September 11. Uh, so he also played the, the, the anti-terrorist chord, and that, of course, resonated very, very well with the, not only with Germany, but also with, with Western Europe as a whole. So that was his first, uh, I would say, uh, foray in, in, in the Western European mind. And, and Germany was the main target, obviously, and that's where it started. Well, yeah, I mean, um, I was actually um, a correspondent in Moscow at this time. So I sort of, you know, followed the rise of, of Putin. And there was definitely in the early 2000s, there was a, there was a sort of, it was almost like a love affair, really, uh, with the, the new Russia. Basically, um, I think it was because he was considered very much uh, a breath of fresh air after the Yeltsin years. You know, the Yeltsin years were um, were associated in the minds of many Western governments with uh, an era of instability, of um, uh, crazy inflation, and then the collapse of the financial system nearly in 1998, um, the rise of the oligarchs. Um, Putin then came in, he introduced uh, economic reforms, he stabilized the situation somewhat. Uh, Russia seemed to sort of um, have experienced a kind of economic revival in the early 2000s. He slapped down the oligarchs, which um, obviously, you know, I think in, in the West that was seen as by many people as a positive thing because these these people had out, outsized kind of influence on the political system, and that was considered a bad thing. It was considered um, corrupt, um, and also there was a lot of um, uh, optimism about um, potential sort of cooperation with Russia. I mean, Sylvie um, mentioned the sort of the mood music after September the 11th, but also, I mean, I remember I was covering kind of business uh, for the Wall Street Journal at that time, and there was a tremendous excitement in Britain over the over deals like the TNKBP kind of uh, uh, oil agreement, which was basically you know, creating a kind of joint venture between a Russian and a British oil company, which was considered very unusual at the time. So there was this sort of feeling that we're talking really about the early 2000s. There was a feeling that, um, that, that actually Putin was someone that the West could deal with, uh, kind of in the same way as Gorbachev was in the mid-80s. Um, and he was a, a, a new start, represented, represented a new start after the instability of the Elton years. Uh, but obviously, as time progressed, the perception of Putin changed markedly. When we think back to the Yeltsin years and the immediate promise following the collapse of the Soviet Union, do you think that the authoritarian Russia we have today is in many ways inevitable because of the Yeltsin years? Or is Putin the prime driver or the prime mover behind that shift to authoritarianism, starting with you, Sylvie? That's that's a, a good question, but I would think, I would say Putin is mostly to blame. I mean, he had a direct role in this. You, you may say that the, the Yeltsin years were 
there was a lot of, of, of freedom, freedom of expression, notably, that I think that was an era where uh, that was one of the few eras where uh, Russians experienced uh, really freedom of expression, but it was so chaotic and so uh, unruly. And, and so people have, uh, Russian people mostly have uh, very bad memories of that of that era, of that decade, uh, the Yeltsin decade. And so, um, yes, Putin came as somebody who could, uh, you know, put, put, some order in this in this uh, restore order in in Russia, both to his uh, countrymen, uh, fellow countrymen, and to to the West. Uh, but very, in fact, when you look closely uh, back at that at that at the early two thousand, you you can see very early the signs of um, of an authoritarian regime coming up. Uh, like, for instance, the way he he very soon. Um, uh, controlled independent media, tried to control media, uh, the way he dealt with oligarchs like, for instance, Mikhail Khodorkovsky, who, who uh, wanted to, to oppose uh, uh, or, or to have a political role. And then um, then came those color revolutions in, in the uh, neighborhood of Russia, at first in Georgia, then in Ukraine, 2003, 2004, the Orange Revolution in, in Ukraine. And, and Putin started to accuse to be suspicious of the West, he thought that the West was had been orchestrating those uh, those color revolutions, and and gradually uh, the atmosphere soured, and 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 then we had another speech in two thousand seven uh, at the Munich Security Conference, which was completely different from the 2001 speech and the charm offensive to the Bundestag. This one was really a warning to the West. It was very aggressive. It was about the hegemony of the United States and and, an enlargement of NATO, and it was uh, pretty threatening. So that's where really you could see that... um, uh, that that the, the, his political uh, positions were really uh, uh, changing, particularly regarding the West. And and then we had before that we had the Chechen war, the second Chechen war when he uh, took power, and that was really, I mean, the West decided that it was an internal affair and that you know that we shouldn't we shouldn't uh, there shouldn't be any interference in it but the way <laughs> uh, the way uh, uh, the russian putin's power dealt with that war was really very reveal, uh, uh, revealing about his intentions and his methods uh, yeah totally um, i mean i think um, you know, if we're looking for the blame, uh, you know, and, and who is responsible for, uh, you know, uh, Russia's kind of um, drift towards authoritarianism, I can't really see how the West is to blame. I mean, I think essentially, you know, you had a kind of collapse of the state system during the during the nineties, and um, and Putin was very much. Uh, seen by the early 2000s as the savior who'd managed to sort of come in and basically, in a way, almost save um, Russia from collapse. Um, and as Sylvie said, there was there was tremendous um, uh, support for Putin at the beginning because of this, the fact that he stabilized the economy and because um, because it, you know real income started to grow, um, but. He did take he did take an authoritarian t- turn very very early on, as as we saw with his crackdown on the independent media and so on, as Sylvie mentioned. Um, and then I think it was sort of really 
you know, as soon as, uh, you know, the attack on Georgia in 2008, as soon as that happened, I think it, it should have been clear to everybody, you know, what, what Putin's uh, strategy was, what his master plan was. And, um, you know, I mean, there was a very famous speech where he said uh, in the 2000s when he said that the collapse of the Soviet Union was the greatest geopolitical uh, catastrophe in the 20th century history. And, um, and I think... You know, that should have been also a, a, a warning to everybody that essentially, you know, he was a revisionist and that he actually had a kind of almost like an imperialist um, agenda, which we, he was pursuing and uh, which now has obviously been kind of implemented with Ukraine. Um, but I think the attack on Georgia was a, was a sign that this agenda was already coming into force, I think, was, was already being implemented. Sorry, my screen went blank there for a second. A quick follow-up on that. In, in sort of the early 2000s, there was, especially in the aftermath of 9-11 and Putin's overtures to the Bush administration, there was a lot of writing about how Russia could possibly be integrated into the Euro-Atlanticist structures of NATO and then possibly the European Union. Do you think that the West could have done more to integrate Russia or was Putin so opposed and so nationalistic that this was never an option, um, starting with you, Sylvie. Um, I don't know whether we will ever be able to uh, <laughs> fully answer this question. My, my feeling is that it, was, it would have been very difficult. There were, I mean, there were a relationship. Remember that uh, Russia was invited and, and to join the G7, which became the G8 for 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 quite some time until, in fact, until the invasion of Georgia. Uh, so you know, it's not like we, the West, never had any uh, cooperation or any relationship with the or, or try to to have a serious relationship with with or positive or constructive relationship with with Russia. Um, there was you know there was a, uh, the e, uh, sorry NATO Russia um, uh, act also relation you know a, a relationship. So there, there were attempts, um, but there was also another reality which uh, apart from all the events that we have pointed out. Um, the Central European states were very reluctant to go further, and for for good reason because of their uh, history. Um, and 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 Putin was um, uh, very negative about the enlargement of NATO, and that that's really I think where where people usually disagree when they discuss this this issue um there's this question about was it wise to enlarge nato but to me you know having uh, worked in poland in hungary i mean in central europe at that time in the early 2000s it was really impossible politically to tell these countries which had liberated themselves after 40 of almost 50 years of uh, of occupation by the Soviets uh, to tell them, oh, we know we you would love to join NATO, but you know we don't want to offend Russia. This is this was just impossible. So um, I don't think. And, and then I mean, there was the um, NATO summit in Bucharest in two thousand eight, where Bush wanted to uh, open the process of. Um, 
accession uh, to NATO to uh, Ukraine and Georgia. And France and Germany, and Angela Merkel had a really very important role there. She was she was in the driving seat of this rebellion against uh, against Bush, and and Nicolas Sarkozy supported her and helped her. But they really were adamant, both of them, that this was not possible that Ukraine and Georgia shouldn't uh, be allowed to join NATO because that would be a provoca- seen as a provocation by Russia. So, you know, I mean, it's not like the West was really uh, going full speed uh, against Russia. No, I think they were trying to accommodate Russia for, for quite a long time, yes. And just a quick follow-up for, for Guy there. I mean, we, we spoke before we started recording about the Munich Security Forum and we mentioned the 2006 speech. Um I do like seeing the video reaction of Senator John McCain as Putin outlines his worldview. Do you think the the worldviews were always irreconcilable? Uh, well, I don't know about irreconcilable, but I think, you know, in a way, uh, 2007 was really the, the point where the mask fell and you saw that, you know, uh, Putin was committed to a kind of revisionist, revanchist uh, kind of foreign policy and that was really, uh, I think that that should have been the, the the moment when people really sort of sat up and um, kind of realised what he, uh, what kind of goals he was pursuing. And um, you know, Putin is a strategic thinker. I mean, you know, he has a lot of strategic patience, if you like. These are long-term goals. That was two thousand and seven. He only annexed. Uh, uh, Crimea seven years later, and then um, he only attacked Ukraine in a full-scale invasion in 2022. So he takes his time, but really from 2007, it should have been obvious that that was his game plan. And yeah, I think in a way from 2007, that was the point where it became obvious that really the position of the West and the position of Russia under Putin were, uh, those positions were irreconcilable. I mean, that really, that should have been the moment. I mean, obviously, you know, 2020 hindsight but and all of that, but that should have been the moment where the countries of NATO and the West really sort of sat up and thought, wow, you know, this is a danger. This is a threat which we need to face. We need to start uh, factoring this into our sort of strategic considerations, into our military planning. And as we can see, that didn't happen. <laughs> in fact, it didn't even happen after he annexed uh, Crimea in 2014. And um, that's one of the, in a way, the most shocking things about this whole story is that people just didn't really read the runes. They didn't, um, they didn't see the warning signs. Uh, and it, it, I mean, to me, that's just like shocking irresponsibility in a way. Um, I mean, it wasn't like Putin was developing these plans in secret. It, it, he did it in in uh, in full view of the international community, as we saw in Munich in 2007. I suspect we might come back to plans developed in full view of the international community later in the episode. But I know Francois has questions on the specifics of Europe's actions towards Russia. I just want to linger a bit on, on Germany. Um, the book uh, you wrote, Sylvie, is called, in French, Les Aveugles. I'm not sure if you found a uh, translation yet in English, but thinking about it, it's Les Aveugles, not Les Aveugles, which means those who blinded themselves rather than those who are blind. So as you described here, in 2007, there was already kind of very apparent signs. Why 
why for so long in Germany was there this kind of were there was blinders on on this kind of evolution of the Russian regime? And at the same time, this growing dependence, especially on the energy in Russia. Why at some point, why wasn't anyone kind of saying, careful here, we've got an issue here? Why has the German political system been allowed to go this far in its relationship with Russia? Is it something to do with its history, with the ties with Russia? How do we kind of, is it purely about kind of national self-interest on the German part? How do we kind of rationalize this decision to put those blinders on for so, for so long? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I, I'd love to hear Guy also about this, but I will give you my uh, my interpretation of this. When as I, I worked, I researched this for, for for the book, and I was fascinated by the depth of the relationship uh, of the German-Russian relationship. And you know, I started this research as a French. I mean, I'm still French, of course, but my the French view was that. Um, uh, there's the German-Russian relationship and there's the Franco-Russian relationship and both are just very important relationships. But this is not the case. I mean, the German-Russian relationship is so much more complex and so uh, much deeper than the Franco-Russian relationship. And, you know, it goes back, of course, to um, several centuries, but also even if you just focus on the 20th century, there's the, the World War Two, where uh, um, I mean these two nations uh, generated the two big totalitarisms of Europe, uh, Nazism and, and Stalinism, and so um, uh, and they they fought each other, of course, during two world wars, but also. Um, there's this because Germany was defeated. There's this feeling of guilt, which is so important in the German German psyche still today. And and you know, if you talk to German officials about their relationship with Russia, they start usually they start by saying Germany is responsible for the death of twenty or twenty seven million Soviet people, and that's really. You know, we have to start from there. So this is really something which is very unique in a, in a, in a relationship. Then there's the reunification, which gave birth to a, a very different feeling. Um, and this is a feeling of gratitude. Germans are, are grateful to, to Gorbachev, of course, but you know, then to, to Russia for having allowed uh, or, or not having prevented this uh, re- reunification. So this is really... Uh, this is the historical and cultural background to to uh, to the German at, uh, attitude to 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 Russia in the 2000s and and until 2022, and then you have the um, the economic motivations, of course, and 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 the the, the energy uh, factor, which is crucial and which uh, led to uh, uh, the construction of those two pipelines, gas pipelines, Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream 2. Um, and also, <laughs> uh, of course, that was the that started under Gerhard Schröder, who got really very involved and very deeply personally involved in this and financially involved. And, and you know, that really gave way to accusations, which I think are justified of corruption in his case. And, and it is true that when, for instance, when he accepted uh, the job of uh, uh, pres- chair- chairman of the um, um, 
subsidi subsidiary of North, of Gazprom Nord Stream AG. He uh, that was 17 days. He took he, he accepted this position 17 days after leaving the chancery, and. I don't. I don't recall. I mean, I haven't find uh, recollection of anybody really protesting uh, against this in the in the political um, circles in Germany. And Angela Merkel was the new chancellor. She was his successor, and she uh, went along with this. So um, Martin Schulz even t told me uh, uh, that she suggested his name. Uh, so you know, it's it's really something which was uh, very very specific to Germany. All this all this story. I'm curious to to hear Guy about this. Guy, curious to get your thoughts. And also, I mean, you mentioned so many things here. You mentioned Merkel, Schroeder, Nord Stream. I think Nord Stream is a great example of how far Germany was willing to go to build that relationship with Russia, because it spent so much political capital against most of Europe, especially Central and Eastern Europe, against the United States. What justifies Germany wanting to go this far with Russia? Well, I mean, it is an extraordinary thing. I mean, you know, Sylvie really summed it up there. I mean, I think when, whenever I write about this subject, um, it's just extraordinary how much the sort of the energy relationship with Russia basically became almost like the bedrock of the German of the German economy. I mean, really. People talk about the German business model as based on three pillars, which is cheap Russian gas, uh, a big and expanding Chinese market for German exports, and the American security guarantee. Those are basically the three pillars, not just of the business model, but really of, of Germany's success as a, as a sort of as an economy uh, in Europe. And um, the cheap Russian gas, I mean, it's impossible to really overstate just how important that was. I mean, by the time the war started, Germany was um, receiving 55% of its gas imports from Russia. And I mean, I've, I've read quite a lot about this subject, and it's quite fascinating how that relationship developed. I mean, in the 70s, there were people, there was almost like a law that basically said that Germany should never, ever become more than 30% dependent on one source of gas. And that law was basically completely overridden in the case of Gazprom. And it's extraordinary. I mean, it wasn't a law. It wasn't like in the Constitution or something like that. But it was a kind of unwritten law uh, in, the, in the kind of energy business of, of Germany. Uh, people, companies like Ruhrgas, who were big uh, gas importers, that, they stipulated that there should never be more than 30% coming from one individual country. And then they completely forgot that rule under Merkel, uh, with, as Sylvie said, with the construction of Nord Stream 1 and 2. And the way things were going, that dependency was even set to grow. It was going to be probably even bigger than 55% if this war hadn't happened. Uh, so it is it is quite extraordinary. And it, it, is, it is really one of the major mistakes, I would say, of German foreign and economic policy of the last, say, 50 years. I mean, it really started in 1970, uh, with a very famous deal, uh, which is which was where German engineering companies basically uh, gave the Soviet Union pipes uh, in exchange for gas. So the gas pipelines were actually built by German companies, and in exchange, Germany got gas. And 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 these deals, 
were extraordinary because they were very, very, very controversial at the time. The Americans were furious. The Americans complained and they tried to sanction uh, German companies and, and they warned the German government that this was not the right thing to do, that this would give the Soviet Union a, a sort of strategic advantage, which would be then very, very difficult to uh, eliminate. And, and they were right. And uh, those warnings were ignored. Germany pursued those policies. And as I say, it then created this system where cheap Russian gas became the mainstay of its economy. And um, then you got this crash. I mean, you know, suddenly Nord Stream 2 is blown up and and Germany suddenly gets no Russian gas. And that has been an absolute catastrophe for the German economy. I mean, I think we're still feeling the, uh, the consequences of that uh, two years on, and we will for many years to come because they've lost their cheap energy. And uh, that is a total disaster for its energy intensive industries. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's an extraordinary thing. I mean, it really is one of the, uh, one of the, the big mysteries of, um, of European policy over the last uh, 50 years, I would say. And, and if I may, yes, if I may add another mystery, uh, it's Angela Merkel's role. Because unlike Gerhard Schröder, uh, Merkel knew everything about Russia. She had uh, lived in a communist regime for her f the first 35 years of her life. It's not like she had left the country, uh, um, German uh, Democratic Republic, that is Germany, at when she was a child. No, she was really a, an adult when when um, uh, communism collapsed. And so she was totally, perfectly warned about, uh, about everything about Russia. And she was also very lucid about uh, Vladimir Putin himself. She had a terrible relationship with, I mean, terrible. She managed to have a working relationship with him uh, because she was a good politician. But personally, she disliked him very much. And you, you probably remember this famous incident at the beginning when they, one of their first meetings when he brought uh, his dog, <laughs> uh, knowing perfectly that she was afraid of dogs. So that's the, the, the kind of relationship they had. And so she uh, was not like Schroeder, you know, completely. Uh, <laughs> um, it, she had a totally different relationship. But Schroeder grew very, very close personally to Putin. And I think they still are, actually. But And, you know, they went to each other's birthdays and so on. So Merkel had a completely different uh, uh, attitude. And yet she not only pursued the same uh, policy as Gerhard Schröder regarding the energy uh, dependency, but she made it worse, much worse. Uh, so, so this is really one of the enigmas that I would, I don't know whether her memoirs will uh, shed any light on this when they are published, but uh, I'm, I'm really curious because she hasn't really, uh, uh, unless I'm wrong, uh, Guy, but I don't think she has really spoken about this uh, uh, in depth so far, yeah? No. Uh, and it's kind of frustrating because she has been interviewed a couple of times uh, since her retirement by German journalists, and they never ask the question, which is just for me one of the biggest, <laughs> you know, uh, misses of, uh, of, 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 of journalistic inquiry in this country is that she's never been asked the question. But I think she will. Uh, when her memoirs come out and she starts giving interviews uh, about her, her memoirs, I think she'll be asked that many, many times. It's interesting you mention that. German reporters don't ask the question. Do you think that points to a larger blinding um, to Sylvie's book title on the part of 
not just German politicians, but parts of the German media establishment too. Yeah, well, I think it's a, I think it's, um, I think it's a question that's definitely worth asking. I mean, I uh, a year or so ago, I read a terrific book uh, called The Moscow Connection, which is about, um, it's written by a couple of journalists uh, that really explore the the sort of Schroeder connection in in Gazprom and in, in Nord Stream and everything, and and basically his love in with Putin and. Um, it's a fascinating book and, and really, really interesting. Um, but they definitely pull their punches with Merkel. And it kind of makes me wonder whether, in a way, there is a sort of nimbus around Merkel, an aura which makes her sort of slightly protected from um, serious critical inquiry in Germany. I don't really know why. Um, I mean, I think... There has been a lot of criticism of her since she retired, um, not so much about the energy story, but more how she neglected investments in German infrastructure and kind of left Germany, you know, basically uh, in a very vulnerable situation in terms of defense. And um, but, but the energy aspect um, hasn't really been explored. But, but, but no, I mean, it's, it's extraordinary. I think basically... Uh, the blame for this is, is generally focused more on Schroeder and um, the other people in the Social Democratic Party, like uh, Frank Walter Steinmeier, the former foreign minister, and Sigmar Gabriel, the former economy minister, who are very closely associated with Schroeder. It's seen as almost like a network of SPD politicians who pursued this very, very pro-Russian policy. Um, and I think they're right. I think that's true. But I think Merkel's role is absolutely, as Sylvie said, it's absolutely central to this story. And it's it's interesting how uh, her role hasn't been seen too critically here. Um, I'm not sure why, but I think that might change as um, as I said in the coming months when her memoirs come out and she comes out of hiding and starts to give interviews. That might that might change. Sylvie and Guy are out. It is Francois and myself ready to discuss what, for me, was a fascinating discussion, a really interesting discussion. And I know for you, Francois, because you read Sylvie's book, um, there were some points that she touched on that were covered in the book. But one example that you mentioned to me offline um, that we didn't cover was about Chancellor Merkel specifically and some historical comparisons for her. Would you like to talk us through... Um, what Sylvie says about Chancellor Merkel in her book, Les Avoglés. So we know, especially over the last few years, there's been a kind of resurgence of the dreaded Munich comparison. Everything, not just on the kind of Ukraine war, but everything in modern politics seems to have to go through some kind of tedious 1930s comparison. So Merkel has been called Neville Chamberlain quite a lot, for seemingly kind of giving up Ukraine, especially looking back in hindsight for kind of the Minsk agreements that in the Normandy format with uh, especially France and, and Germany and Russia and Ukraine, all of that is kind of being revisited as France and Germany kind of giving up Ukrainian sovereignty for a kind of short-term peace. And so as a result, uh, Merkel inherits the title of kind of Neville Chamberlain. But what's really interesting is in um, Sylvie's book, she actually talks about it and how Merkel is kind of wrestling with that comparison. So there was a, a movie or documentary that came out of um, about two or three years ago about Neville Chamberlain, which actually was kind of a revision of our understanding of Chamberlain. He wasn't a coward who gave up. Essentially, the idea was 
Um, he gave the UK time to rebuild its defense industry, to be ready for war. And essentially, the Munich agreements were him giving the UK war for fight. They couldn't win at on you know, at that moment. They needed more time. And the Minsk agreement would essentially be Angela Merkel giving Ukraine time for them to get ready, get equipped to fight a, a proper war against Russia. Now, it's, I think, the most favorable way you can describe Angela Merkel's um, stance on Russia. Again, as they said, it's an immensely paradoxical relationship because, as they point out, she's not budding up with Putin like Schroeder did or like even Sigmar Gabriel would, would, would do when he would ask him to sign autographs for his wife's uh, hairdress or something. Um, she was very aware of a man that Putin was. Um, she, having lived, of course, in East Germany, she was quite familiar with the functioning of that kind of regime and so on. And she spoke Russian, not as well as Putin spoke German, but she did. So it makes for, again, this is kind of the most positive understanding of Merkel's actions you can give, kind of giving time for Ukraine. I'm not sure it's going to stand to proper scrutiny. I'm not really sure that was a kind of driving strategic concern behind the Minsk agreement from German point of view. But again, as they said, it will be really interesting to kind of revisit that conversation when Merkel publishes her memoirs, because her reputation, I think she left in January 2021, a, a, a month and a bit, or December 20, I forget exactly when she leaves, but essentially she's leaving a few months before the invasion, which have completely changed the image she had as kind of kind leader of the liberal international order, especially after Trump's election. This obviously has cast a bit of doubt on that image of her. Yes, Merkel left December 2021, um, just like a few months before the invasion. And, and to your point about her image changing, I think it's been one of the more fascinating changes in coverage of Merkel and German politics from people outside of Germany has been the fact that we went from November 2016 and then through the Trump years of Merkel being heralded as this leader of the liberal world, it's leader of the liberal order. Um, there were others, um, I'm sure you know my personal feelings about Chancellor Merkel, were never that laudatory or positive for a host of reasons. Um, but I was very much in a vocal minority um, until Russia invaded Ukraine en masse in 2022. And then suddenly you started seeing people revising their opinions of Merkel her domestic politics, her foreign policy. Uh, and I think the phrase that was put in a, in a foreign policy essay towards the end of her chancellorship as Russia was invading was that, you know, she wasn't this staunch liberal, but her foreign policy was mercantilism or Merkelantilism. I can't quite make the pun. Um, but, you know, it was it, the close ties with Russia were purely economic, which obviously we talked about in great detail with the Serbian guy. Um, and you know, it's interesting to sort of hear Guy's perspectives on how the German foreign policy establishment is unlikely to, or you know, how staid they were and how um, unable they were to adjust to circumstance uh, in making those foreign policy decisions as the strategic picture changed. Um, I, we focused a lot on, I think, you know, Germany took a lot of flack, but uh, I want to hear your perspectives about France and particular Macron, who you know, he was mentioning, likes to think in sort of grand intellectual 
terms and in terms of grand designs and all kind of grand projet um, for the geopolitical settlement of Europe. And, you know, his negotiations with Putin, his vision for Europe have sometimes, you know, they've rankled people outside of France. Uh, do you think that, you know, both on our conversation today and in general, your thoughts that um, Macron will sort of revisit some of his plans on on relations with Russia? Well, again, I really recommend Sylvie's book on that. It's obviously we'll talk about Macron because he's still around and that's important. But she goes back into the invasion of Georgia and how President Sarkozy back then uh, got really involved and trying to find a peace. But again, it was kind of in a messy, uncoordinated way that the, the agreement he found with Putin ended up being a lot more favorable than it needed to be. Um, but very interesting insights in that kind of whole period. On Macron, as Sylvie said, there's been many attempts by Macron to get this kind of big foreign policy win. And often that would have the, the, the method he chose was through interpersonal relations. He tried, or Trump famously invited him to the um, Bastille Day military parade. He tried with Putin. And I think Sylvia was right to argue that in both of his cases, there's a lot of political capital spent, especially on Putin. He had a lot of tensions with his own diplomats as a result of this kind of outreach to Russia. But there hasn't been much benefits for it. In the case of Russia, he went, you know, in the weeks preceding the war, he spent a hell of time essentially doing a shuttle between Kiev and and Moscow. And I remember one, the last time he went to Moscow, he, he left. In this kind of surprisingly vibrant mood, thinking, you know what, I think we've done it. I think we've we we saved the peace, which to me was a catastrophic moment of self congratulation because I'm, I'm not sure how he got deceived by Putin that much. But if I was running this, my line would have been quite different. It would have been, you know, this is this is midnight minus one. I am doing we are doing as Europeans as much as we possibly can to avoid war, and we'll I'll do everything in my powers. But this is midnight minus one, and I'm very concerned. And if you do manage somehow to find an agreement, then you can come back saying, you know, peace in our time. Um, but the issue was the kind of self-congratulatory mood, which was followed, you know, hours later by the invasion, just gave a really bad reputation to France, to Macron, and really hampered all the narrative around France. And this kind of weird attempt to play this kind of you know, for, not third party, but like trying to kind of be a connector between Russia and Ukraine. It wasn't possible, you know, if he was serious about, well, he is serious about strategic autonomy. But I think at that point in time, he should have accepted that what needs to be done is to unify the European bloc, uh, make amends for, you know, a form of not just Macron, but kind of French arrogance towards concerns, security concerns from Eastern and Central Europe and trying to build a unity around that. But there's a lot, a lot of political capital that was lost at that moment. And um, now I think, you know, he's smart enough to realize there is no kind of immediate future for, you know, rapprochement with, with Russia. Um, there might be though voices, you know, as Sylvie said, for negotiations with Russia. And, you know, I think that'll be part of a healthy debate if, if um, conflict keeps on going on. has to be smartly. You can't simply be, you know, um, giving in to Russian talking points. But 
we'll have this conversation for months to follow, especially if you know the defense needs of, of, of Ukraine continues to outstrip whatever Europe can provide, and especially if um, America ends up with uh, Donald Trump 2.0. So, yeah, and actually, that's one 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 dimension we kind of missed here is America. America had its own uh, illusion, of course, under President Obama with with a reset. Um, I famously remember Barack Obama having this line in the uh, 2008 debate about how um, Mitt Romney's concern about, sorry, not 2008, uh, 2012, about Mitt Romney's concern. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 2012 about Mitt Romney's concerns about Russia being very kind of very passe. And uh, in the end, Mitt Romney ended up being 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 right. So I think, you know, the kind of, tw- the reset didn't last, you know, forever. But from 2008 to or 2009 to like 2013 or something. There's a lot of political capital also spent in, in Washington to have this kind of working relationship with Russia, which ended up not providing that much in the end. Merkel's been getting dragged through the mud for her foreign policy decisions. It will be a matter of time before uh, President Obama's, some of his foreign policy decisions, and especially to your point, um, the attempted reset with Russia with the button that didn't actually say reset um, under Secretary Clinton, and then, of course, you know, the 1980s called, they want the foreign policy back. That statement did not age even remotely well. And I think there will be some more critical appraisals of the Obama foreign policy coming out in the future. Um, a closing remark, because we both, unfortunately, have to go to France versus Ireland, Six Nations, this afternoon or evening for you, um, is we focus today on France and Germany and you know, Sylvie's book obviously focuses on France and Germany. Those are the two principal actors in Europe. There are a lot of other countries that sort of get away with their views on Russia and their accommodation of Russia. Austria springs immediately to mind, but there are others. And I think, you know, it's it's more, I think there's an element of, you know, France and Germany may have been leading the way, but a lot of countries blindly followed um, for their own reasons, and some still are, and you know, Europe has to figure out how it wants to move on. And well, one country which did go right and has been a big player in European politics forever has been the UK. I mean, it didn't always get it right. Obviously, the early two thousands, London was called London Grad, and you know, everybody remembers Roman Abramovich who came in and bought my club of Chelsea. And spend a lot of billions of uh, petro dollars in in that club over the years. So, but I think in the 2010s there's been a adjustment from on British foreign policy on Russia, and they were very skeptical. David Cameron, especially, was very skeptical on the Normandy formats. And I think maybe there's been a there might be a reassessment on that later on as well. We can definitely do another deep dive on British foreign policy, uh, especially with an election coming up this year. But for now, Francois, thank you so much for putting this episode together. Um, Sylvie Kaufman's book is available in French. I don't know if there's an English translation available, but most of our listeners are are multilingual. So I'm sure you can find a copy of it. Um, It is a phenomenal read detailing Franco-German relations with Russia. And if you want to listen to the full conversation where we go in depth about France's illusions, where we talk about Eastern and Central Europe and the changing power um balance of power within european politics you can join us on our patreon for as little as five euros a month 
It's all below in description. Just have to click the link and join us to support the pod. Otherwise, feel free to share the podcast, send it to friends, review it, rate it, whatever you can do to help the pod. We would be very grateful. Cheers, Julian.